Okay, so going back to what we were talking about before with uh, the songs that made it onto tour and some that, I guess some of them you could say were, they were welcome additions, but they were kind of sad additions at the same time. Uh, As the band gets older, people they've collaborated with get older, and sometimes these people pass away. And so we saw two notable tributes while we were on tour. And those tributes were When Love Comes to Town and Forty. And perhaps the interesting thing about those tributes is the different live trajectories of those songs. Um, when Love Comes to Town, I think it's genuinely surprising that it had not been performed since the end of the Zoo TV tour, with the exception of a guest appearance with B.B. King um, at one of his shows. Um because, you know, it's on the best of 1980-1990. It is a reasonably well-known single. I remember it being played on Australian and New Zealand radio quite a lot in the 1990s. When I was a kid, I actually thought the person doing the deep vocals was The Edge, not B.B. King. I didn't realise it was a collaboration until I was about 10 years old. Um, <laughs> but um, I think a lot of people who grew up on the band actually have been under a similar false impression. I, I, I know I'm not the only person who's related such a story. Uh, you know, this is a well-known song that has a lot of energy, is a, a fun live track. Um, so I think it's, you know, obviously the circumstances in which it was played with B.B. King passing on were sad in the first place. I just think it's quite surprising that it took something like that um, to get the song back in the set list. And, of course, it only actually got, four performances before it disappeared again. It didn't even make the step during the run in Chicago, which I found very surprising. Yeah, it's, um, I I mean, with the uh, earlier acoustic performance earlier this month, uh, December 2015, in case you're listening a couple years down the line, um, it was done at a performance celebrating 10 years of um, Red, and... That one was done by Bono and Edge with Irish musician Hosier. And that was its fifth appearance since 2008, I guess. So Sixth since 1993. Yeah, and we're all going to miss B.B. King. Um, his version of One Love Comes to Town that he did live was quite different from the rock version that U2 performed. But he did I, it much more often than the band did. Yeah, when the band did play it, uh, those four appearances on the tour, it sounded amazing. It was great. It was such a shot of energy. And I noticed quite a number of people on Twitter and fan sites saying that they don't really like the song, but those performances got them going. And certainly um, when it came into the set for the first time at that second Vancouver show, um I was really impressed just listening to a live feed. I was rocking along. It was a great time. I I thought it was going to become a fixture. And, you know, for those first couple of pairs of shows, it was sticking around. Um, and then at the end of May, it just vanished. And, yeah, apart from that um, Red concert, that was it. It's, hopefully that's something that they'll bring back again because it was a real shot in the arm. It sounded fantastic it sounded like they'd never stopped playing it it was Mm. it's a song that has a lot of energy as you say it's a song that you can't help dancing to even if you can't dance (laughs) it's just really it was breathtaking i'd have to say and i say that word because i'm out of breath trying to think of a word to describe it (laughs) no it was it was really good and i think um ditching it early was a surprise and probably not the best decision. I certainly think had they done Desire When Love Comes to Town rather than Desire Angel of Harlem, that would have been better. Um, But, of course, you know, the the, the appeal um, with doing Angel of Harlem is that, you know, they could bring somebody on stage to play guitar that's, you know, a very popular song for them to use in that capacity. So I guess that's partly an explanation. But why it, you know, vanished so quickly after four performances that received widespread praise is fairly confusing. Of course, the other tribute song, 
uh, had a much different trajectory. Um, you know, there was the very sad and very unexpected death of Dennis Sheehan, who has been, uh, you know, a, a prominent member of U2's crew, literally for decades. Uh, and anyone who, you know, listened to the live shows has probably heard Bono tell the story about how Dennis was the one responsible for getting the how long chant going at the end of 40 uh, at Red Rocks where he was, you know, lurking under the stage and, you know, started yelling out how long and got the crowd singing it as the band left. And so when he passed away very suddenly early in the tour during the um, Los Angeles stand, um, you know, they, they brought 40 back into the set for him. It was very powerful. But many of us wondered, would it stick around? Would it would it be played more than, you know, just those two performances in L.A.? And it did, and it lasted right through essentially to the end of the second leg. Um, you know, it, it was used for other tributes, um, and even when it was not being used as a tribute, just when, you know, the band went from bad into 40, it was an incredibly powerful moment. And an unexpectedly good transition, I'd say, as well. Well, I've always thought that bad slash 40 um, is one of the band's best closers anyway. Um, you know, the performances from the Vertigo tour where they didn't play... 40 in full after bad, um, when they played 40 in full on the Vertigo tour and on other nights. Um, but when they ended the shows with a lengthy snippet of 40 within bad, that, I think, for me, is a pinnacle, possibly the pinnacle, of their live closes. Uh, I mean, obviously, Love is Blindness is another one that's right up there for me. Um, and so for them to return to that, this tour, I was absolutely stoked about, especially because, you know, they did bad, they did the snippet, and then they went into 40 itself and did the whole song. And, you know, most of the performances, you have Bono getting out the spotlight and shining it on the crowd like he used to do back in the day. I thought that was just brilliant it was moving mm. especially at the last dublin show i'd say oh i think all the time every time it was done just knocked me over there's a reason it's endured for it so long that's all that can really be said about that even mm. on the i mean people don't realize it but it has been done on basically every tour except i think zoo tv yeah there was a snippet of it um, in one Lover's Blindness performance um, in Mexico City. But other than that, that was the only tour it missed. Of course, it um, holds a very interesting distinction on 360 um, because it was only played once. It was played in Moncton, uh, which, as I think most people know, was the very last show of the tour. Uh, and it was the very last song of the tour. And that means that it is the only song that has ever debuted as the very last song of the tour. And that's probably true for every other artist in history. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very weird to have a tour debut as literally the last song at the last show. Not many artists would have the, the stones to pull <laughs> that off. I mean, there are, I think, there's at least one example in U2's history of a song making its tour debut at the last show, but not as the last song and not an original. Um, Rocking in the Free World was played in Honolulu at the end of the Vertigo tour um, uh, with Pearl Jam. But Bono had been involved in performances of that song, you know, previously at off-tour appearances over the course of Vertigo. So it wasn't like, you know, this um, song that came out of nowhere or anything. And it, as I say, it was not the last song of the set list. It was... Uh, during the encore, I believe, but it was not the um, the final song. Whereas 40 at Moncton, only performance on the tour, last song of tour. Um, and, you know, I had been wondering, would it make it to this tour? And the circumstances in which it came back were tragic, but then it is stuck around being played consistently um, throughout the tour, if not necessarily as frequently as some people would like, myself included. But, you know, it's stuck around and it's been incredibly powerful. I guess the next thing would be the Mixler stats. Yeah, well, this was, 
you know, one of the great innovations, I think, of this tour. Um, you know, getting to experience these powerful moments um, like Bad and 40 or When Love Comes to Town. It, you know, previously, if you really wanted to fully appreciate them and you weren't at the show, you would have to wait until afterwards for bootlegs, for videos, for that sort of thing. Whereas this tour, we consistently had amazing streams, Mixler, Periscope, Meerkat being the three common platforms. Now, on maybe should I give um, a short history of how this has developed? How we started covering it back in 2005? So, yeah, well, just very briefly. Yeah. Um, I remember on the Vertigo tour uh, to get the live set lists. We started out with people texting us, uh, and then we would post that. This is, you know, in the days even before Twitter. Um, and I remember during the third leg, we started having some live streams, um, generally by people who are on interference. They sounded underwater. Uh, you, you would have extreme difficulty even figuring out what song was being played, let alone picking any snippets or anything. Um, and then by the 360 tour, technology had come along. We started to get some live video streams, but... Uh, I remember uh, Justin TV being one of the platforms, but they were very shaky. They'd buffer like hell. It would be hard to follow anything. And then on this tour, you know, we had these three platforms um, that would, in most cases, provide an amazing quality stream for as long as the person streaming was willing to do it. Um, and we were able to follow, you know, every show. It was absolutely incredible. I'd like to say right now a massive thank you to every single person who streamed on any platform because covering these shows without those streams would have been simply impossible. And people, you know, giving up their time, their data uh, to, you know, cover, uh, to provide these streams uh, is really monumentally appreciated. And now, of course, um, our webmaster, Matt, uh, he covered a whole lot on uh, the YouTube Gigs Mixler account. And I think the reception to that was incredibly positive, one of the best things we did all tour. Yeah, there was. it's certainly been the easiest time we've ever had for covering a live set list. Um, oh, absolutely. There were moments, of course, where we had, uh, or everybody at the venue had uh, connection issues just because the network wasn't that good. But even so, that still pales in comparison to, even on the 360 tour, the troubles that were had. Uh, I remember one of the most popular platforms for the 360 tour was uh, 1,000 mics. And of course, mm. they had um, a limit on the number of people who could listen to a stream at any one time. And so... Generally, the most popular way to do it was to listen to the um, U2Radio.com stream that they'd do because they'd tune into the 1,000 mic stream that was going on and then they'd broadcast it out for everybody else. And it was certainly so much easier. I don't think I saw anybody use 1,000 mics at all this tour. It was all Mixler, Meerkat, and Periscope. And mm. um, I just want to give a few stats from our Mixler because it's really quite astonishing as of this moment as we're recording are the youtube gigs mixler account and i suppose matt's aching arms have given 1367 different people who are subscribed to the account who follow it more than that of course listened we have 602,175 total listens to all of the streams that were done it's just unbelievable Six hundred, uh, over 602,000 for, I think, 22, 25 streams. It's mm. incredible. And, you know, you can still listen to these old streams. They're archived. All you have to do is click, go to our Mixler account, which is mixler.com slash u2gigs. Click the show real items on the left, and then you can listen to all the previous streams that have been done. And in addition to that, of course, our Twitter account, we jumped up by, I think, over 5,000 followers. We're now at over 20,200 followers on Twitter. I think it's just astonishing to have over 20,000 people following us on Twitter. Uh, I, I, you know, he, here I am just, you know, this guy, you know, 
covering these shows, posting, you know, occasionally my nonsense opinions on the songs that are being played or trying to figure out snippets. And, of course, I think that's, you know, the, the, the really fun part about it, that having so many people involved in following shows every night, there's, you know, this sort of communal atmosphere, there's... Um, you know, people who are willing to contribute what they've noticed to fill the gaps where I might have missed something or couldn't make something out on the feed. Um, or a couple of times where Bono did a snippet that I simply didn't recognise. Um, so, you know, I think we had a whole lot of fun doing the coverage. Uh, you know, lots of people we had great back and forth with or, you know, when we dug up some really bizarre trivia um, no, I, I, I thought it was really, really enjoyable. I've lost count of the number of times people have tweeted us with information that we either missed or just didn't know about. And not just for this tour, but information on historical tour moments as well. Yes, uh, it's been really good when people just, you know, send us a message saying, oh, I was listening to a bootleg of this pop art show or whatever, and I noticed a snippet that's not in your database. I think the oldest one that I noticed um, that was pointed out was... Um, a snippet of All I Want Is You in Bad on an old Love Town show. And this was mm. one that had, we'd had some, we'd been able to listen to and had some information before. It had some snippets in it, but this was one that we'd missed, so. I don't know how we missed that, so I can't remember who it was who pointed that out, but thank you. We really should have had that sooner. <laughs> you know, there are snippets that have been added in years after, even though it's on an official U2 release. Like, I've got a short list here. <laughs> of what they are there was uh somebody recently pointed out that in the vertigo tour chicago dvd there was a snippet of please in bullet the blue sky earlier this year i think i pointed out to you ax that the elevation release from boston has amazing grace in i will follow and that's hey, thing you that pointed wasn't... that out numerous times before i remember to actually get around to adding it to the set list yeah but but still it's something that wasn't in the set like it's mm. something that wasn't mentioned in our primary sources at the time. And so just most of the time we see or hear Bono ad-libbing and it goes over our heads because it's just more Bongolese. But this was one occasion where it's like, oh, wait, no. But it took almost 15 years for that to be noticed and uh, added to our database. So, you know. And I think quite often some of the snippets that we miss are those in songs where there isn't regularly a snippet. Um, I know that when I did a massive batch of snippet checking in around about 2006, uh, when I listened to, God, probably almost every show um, that had been recorded uh, up to that point, um, you know, I tried to listen to full shows, but after a while, um, especially on tours of really static set lists, you would sometimes, um, you know, I'd sometimes find myself skipping to the points where I expected there to be a snippet. You know, if I was listening to a show that had bad, I would, you know, jump straight ahead um, to that to see what was snippeted in bad and might not have checked, say, October into New Year's Day, because there never were snippets there. Um, you know, I tried to avoid that habit, um, but, you know, it definitely happened sometimes, and there are a lot of shows that uh, in later years I've gone back to listen to to check the whole thing, because trying to do everything in one go was just very overwhelming. Um, and that led to the other problem, that even if you um, listen to a full show, you're going to be switched on for the whole thing. If you're, you know, in a part of the show where there isn't normally a snippet, um, and you're busy just chatting to somebody online, or back then I would have been writing um, my undergraduate essays, I might just not have been focusing at that point, and something could have just gone past me if it didn't, you know, jar something in me to go, oh, yes, I need to be paying attention. Whereas, you know, when I got up to a song like that, I would know I needed to be switched on. So sometimes you can listen to these shows and the snippets just slip by you if you're not properly engaged and not expecting it in that moment. It is something that's difficult because if you listen to a song where there's never been a snippet before, you don't expect one. You just don't really pay no. attention. And... I pointed out to you a couple of months ago, I think now, that on the 
last U2 fan club release, uh, Another Time, Another Place, there is actually a snippet in On Cat Dub, which is the first recorded snippet in that song ever. It's like, you would not expect that. You would not sit down and go, oh, I wonder if there is a snippet in On Cat Dub, because, yeah, there basically weren't snippets in that song. It's, we've got over, I forget how many we have, it's over 200, probably over 300 for that song. Um, 228 recorded performances that we know of. And only once has there ever been a snippet. So, you know, there's always a chance. So t- with t- over two- 20,000 followers, guys, please, if we've missed something, let us know. We love it. It's fantastic. It's, it's great. We're, the nature of our site means that we'll never be 100% complete. But we love being as complete as we possibly can. So if there's anything we've missed, even if it's just a brief snippet, We'd love to know. Absolutely. You know, I love being able to add new things to the database, as I've, um, you know, said earlier. It's always really satisfying to add any kind of new information. And perhaps while we're talking about snippets, shall we discuss perhaps um, some of the difficult nature of cataloguing some of these? (laughs) One of the biggest controversies of the tour, (laughs) not with the tour production, but with the way that it's being recorded. Okay, um, shall we list the examples first? And Yes. Okay, obviously, Zeropa. Take it away, Axe. Oh, God, okay. The difficulty with, um, I guess, classifying songs um, is that I don't think there's really anything we could have done that would have made literally everyone happy. Um, with abbreviated performances like this, it can be very difficult to decide what is the boundary between a snippet and a full performance. And since we don't, at the moment, have the ability to indicate um, whether a performance is abbreviated, that perhaps makes this call, um, you know, one that is maybe even more significant, shall we say. Um, now, I thought um, the best approach is, is to count Zeropa as, um, as a full song. Um, it had its own music. Uh, Bono sung a very large chunk of the lyrics. Comparable um, to the Zoo TV length, really. Yes, it was very comparable to what they did on Zoo TV. Um, and... On the printed set lists that the band were using, most of them counted the song separately, um, listed it in the same text as all the other um, full songs, um, as opposed to Mother and Child Reunion or Hands at Booth America on the first leg, which were listed in a smaller text. Um, that wasn't always the case. There were some printed setlist where Zeropa was in a smaller text or was um, written down as Zeropa Segway. And if I can just interject here, sometimes they had both listed in the normal text and as a Sieg in the same concert, depending on which setlist was given out to somebody. Mm. So there wasn't consistency there, but most of the time it was given in, you know, in, in the full text. So... Uh, that was another argument in favour of counting it as a full song. But I think it got so, you know, it was such a long and prominent thing featuring so much of the song that it needed to be counted separately, that it was way more than a snippet, even if it wasn't, you know, every single note of the studio version. Um, you know, I think most performances ran two minutes 30 uh, with you know, its own music, its own lyrics before the organ of streets kicked in, which is completely different to Hands of Built America on the first leg, which, what, went for about 30, 40 seconds and had literally one line from the um, from the actual studio recording from the lyrics. Yeah, so that, these are the Hands that Built America, ah, uh, America. And then it America, America, you know. So, I, I, I would, you know, I would think it would be nice to, you know, between now and the start of the next leg, whenever that might be, to, 
you know, have a play around and see what we can do on the database if we can note performances as being abbreviated or shortened in some way. But on the other hand, part of me is not actually persuaded that that's desirable because there's already this big question, this grey zone of what's a snippet, what's a full performance. And if we were to add in an abbreviated tag, that creates a further distinction. What's just a snippet? What's an abbreviated full performance? What's an abbreviated performance? What's one that is full enough to be counted? Like, what about New Year's Day? The, um, the final verse on the studio version has basically never been sung. There are a couple of very early performances where a line or two of it show up, but for all intents and purposes, that last verse is not done. Should we be tagging every version of New Year's Day as abbreviated? I think that would be absurd. You have a one unique occasion where there was a full song done inside of another song, and I am, of yes. course, talking about the first time being played in full inside of Bad. And for those who haven't seen the clip or heard of this yet, they do Bad, and then when it comes time to slow down where the snippets usually are, Bono sings all of the first time, the Edge plays the chords of the first time during this, and then they go back into Bad and finish the song up. We have this listed as a snippet because it is a song inside a song, despite the fact that it's a complete song. The full thing. This is an instance where it would be very nice to have a medley tag. And we have tried to develop one in the past, um, and we have not succeeded. We're going to look at it again, but I can't make any promises. Um, because there is an example, there, there are a number of examples of snippets. There's, um, what was it, Desire and a Bruce Springsteen song, um, I think I forget which one right now, is that She's the One, um, at um, a 2009 gig on the 360 tour. That's a medley, but we have to count the Springsteen song as a snippet on the database um, and just indicate in the show comments that this is, in fact, a medley. Um, I would also like to be able to list Uncat Dub into the heart together on one line because it really is just, you know, one full song. Uh, and I think one of the uh, things that I'm surprised uh, didn't get pointed out in the whole Zeropa debate was that we list the cry separate from the electric code. Mm -hmm. And that is it's a mini song. It's, yes, it's got its own music, its own lyrics, but it's very short uh, and really just serves to introduce the electric code. Now, yes, on the October album, um, it's the basis of Is That All? But, um, you know, it, it's not an independent song in and of itself. And so, again, if we um, ever come up with um, a medley tag, well, it's going to be a lot of work adjusting that, but it, it would be worth it if we can do it. But unfortunately, we can't make any promises in that regard. Yeah, like, I'll just do a quick run-through of some other times we've had these kind of debates or difficulties with um, the lack of a medley tag. We have, uh, back on the 360 tour, there was uh, The Wanderer, which was done in Nashville. We classified that as a snippet because I believe it was just the first verse and then a repetition of one, 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 Wanderer we deemed that not quite lengthy enough for it to be classified as an independent song. That was at the end of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Back at the Music Rising performance in 2006 with Green Day, it's probably best remembered for The Saints Are Coming, um, but at the end of that they went into Beautiful Day, which is literally just the final chorus. After The Saints Are Coming, Bono does some random bungalese, I guess you could say, and the only actual lyric from the song that comes in apart from the final chorus is see the bird with a leaf in her mouth after the flood all the colors came out and then it's just the beautiful day jam and that is literally all there is of the song we classify that as a full performance because we don't have that abbreviated tag but really it's not lengthy enough there's it's the final chorus only you can't really call that a full performance of the song Finally, there's the Pump It Up, Get On Your Boots medley that was done on Elvis Costello's Spectacle uh, in Toronto back in 2009. And it's clearly a medley. They perform lengthy parts of both songs, but 
just because of the nature of the database that we have, um, like, as Zach said, we've tried before and we're going to attempt again to get some sort of medley tag, but because of this, we have to list pump it up as a snippet and get on your boots as a primary song. Mm. You know, there, there are going to be these tough sorts of calls. Um, you know, no matter how you design a database, you're going to have borderline decisions that are going to be tough to make. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes you just got to make a call and stick to it. And that's what we did with Zeropa, and I'm happy with the decision that we made there. It was a bit frustrating how long that debate dragged out. I, I, I got a little bit shirty sometimes with how, you know, well into the leg people would be trying to persuade us to change it. It's like, no, this, this, we've had this discussion, um, and we're quite happy with what we're doing. Um, and, you know, different fan sites have chosen to classify it different ways, and I think that's the virtue of having multiple fan sites is, you know, you, you, you can get um, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, they've had... They're, they're, sorry? Sorry, they had the, the other fan sites, as I said, that's one of the beauty about having the different fan sites. Um, U2 Tours, they had their own internal discussion. They decided it was a snippet and not a full song, and you know what? All the power to them for that. I have no problem with that at all. I, I mean, we relish the that, fact, personally, that we have... That's so cool. Yeah, like, I relish the fact that they've come to a different decision than us. It's absolutely fantastic. And I'm not trying to say that sarcastically, so I hope it doesn't come across that way. It's um, It just serves to highlight the confusion that we have. We're not going to claim that we're the only database out there. We're not going to claim that we're always going to be right. We've come to our own decision after some internal discussion... The other fan sites have also come to their own decision, and I don't think it really matters which way you decide to go with it. At the end, what matters is that it's been documented. And trying to maintain internal consistency. And with these uh, marginal calls, that can be difficult, um, especially, you know, things that are added a decade ago and then our thinking changes. Um, though I do stick behind what we did for Peace on Earth, and I, that is provided somewhat of the template for most subsequent decisions. Um, because Peace on Earth at the start of the third leg of Elevation was very short, just obviously a snippet, an intro to walk on. Um, but as that leg dragged on, Bono sang more and more and more of it. And it was starting to feel like a separate performance. And I know that when I was doing snippet checking, um, of that leg, I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with listing some of those performances as just snippets. So what I decided to do was if there was at least half of the song performed, or more than half, then it was counted as a separate song. And that happened on three occasions, and those are the three that are listed as full performances. Uh, and the others that did not get to the halfway mark, and therefore uh, they are just counted as snippets. Um, of course, the interesting thing in this case, this band actually did rehearse a full band piece on Earth um, before the third leg of Elevation, and obviously never did it. But we have those three performances where Bono sung extremely large amounts of it that I think should be counted separately. And that is what has influenced my thinking um, leading on. There are a few other cases that perhaps we should briefly mention where something really probably should be counted as a snippet, but was done independent of anything else, so it has to be counted separately. Um, Norwegian Wood on the Vertigo tour, there were performances where Bono would sing a reasonable amount of it, not really that much, not half, I don't think he even got to half the song, but it was completely separate from both the song performed before and the song performed after. Um, and there's also that abbreviated lover's blindness in Buenos Aires um, after um, All I Want Is You. And it's long enough that it meets, you know, the, the more than half the song requirement. It doesn't have the solo, but it has most, if not all, of the lyrics. Yeah, the, and, the band even join in with him. Yes, yes. What is it? Edge drums along and the, the, uh, Adam and Larry, I think, come in. Um, and so, you know, we counted that separately, even though at the time there were some people who thought it should only be considered a snippet. Um, so you do have these these instances, and, you know, we try our best to manage it and to make decisions that are 
if nothing else, logically consistent. And sometimes, you know, we try and be as consistent as we can, but sometimes even the way that it's said leads to a difference in whether we classify it as a snippet or just something that was said that happens to resemble a song that was snippeted. And the one I'm going to highlight right here is the uh, Frank Sinatra 100 Years tribute, where in the middle of two shots of happy, one shot of sad, Bono says, happy birthday, Frank, from New York, always, forever, now. Is that an always forever now snippet, or is he just saying that Frank Sinatra's legacy is will last for always? It's uh, it's really hard to tell. Um, I, it's, I don't. Yes, he says always forever now. Does that make it an always forever now snippet? And I think in this case, it's really hard to make that call, and therefore, at the moment, we're not counting it. There are other cases of snippets that are clearly very tenuous, but at the same time. It is unambiguous that Bono is referencing another song. Frank Sinatra is a good example here because he would end um, some performances of Ultraviolet by singing Light My Way in the style of Sinatra's My Way. And it's very clear that Bono is referencing the Sinatra song. Therefore, we list it as a snippet, despite the fact that it's just you know, an over-the-top ending to the song. Um, and, you know, there are other examples of these very brief remarks, well, not remarks, but, you know, Bono humming the melody to something or dropping, you know, a very short titled lyric somewhere. Because it's unambiguously a reference, we count it, you know, any sort of reference to another song, we list meticulously. Um, but in, in a case like this, um, the, the Sinatra Always Forever Now thing, it, it's... It's spoken, it's not 100% clear if he's actually referencing a very obscure track from Passengers or not. And then there have been some cases where in speeches he makes spoken references that are possibly or probably to a song lyric, um, but we've tended to not count those, that you know, there needs to be something sung, that it has to be more than him just talking and making a hand pun. And these are historical cases as well. One that was brought to our attention recently is that back in 2003, Bono sang the exact same invisible snippet that we count in 2015. This was at the Special Olympics broadcast where they performed one. And at the end of the song, Bono says, there is no them, there is only us. Do we count that as an invisible snippet 12 years before the song? I don't think anybody could reasonably expect us to believe that Invisible was in development with that lyric for that length of time. Like, yes, some songs no, go that, through lengthy development periods, but not generally that long with the same lyrics. And I, th I think that one quite clearly is not an invisible snippet. There is no them, there is only us, is, you know, a, a common enough phrase, um, you know, from human rights campaigning. I, you know, when I was, you know, an idealistic teenager, some you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, I remember that phrase being around, uh, and that would be, you know, what one was referencing, it's stuck around long enough, um, and he's been active enough in those sorts of movements, obviously, that it has come through in Invisible's lyrics and is now an obvious reference to the song. But 12 years ago, he was just using a phrase that was bouncing around at the time. And the same thing can easily be said of um, Crumbs From Your Table. Obviously yeah. the lyric, where you live should not decide whether you live or whether you die, is in the song, but it's borrowed from many different uh, campaigns. It's where everything except for the whether you die part is said, where you live should not decide whether you live. Like It's even mentioned uh, in the Mother and Child Reunion portion of the show, it's on the screen, it's written down. Is that a mm. reference to Crumbs From Your Table? No. It's uh, it's a reference to the motto of many of these different campaigns for equality and anti-poverty. It was incorporated into the song later, but that doesn't mean that it's actually a reference to the song when it comes up again in the future. Mm. You know, Bono will obviously include in his lyrics, you know, uh, references and call-outs to 
things that he hasn't been involved in, things that are relevant. We'll be drawing upon these sorts of um, sayings or cliches or ideas. Um, and so, you know, it's not surprising to see them come out in the lyrics, but it means that when he mentions them in concert, um, it does not inherently mean that it's a snippet. Um, you know, you've, you've got to use some judgment. What's the melody? What's the role of it? Um, is the song likely to be on his mind? Um, obviously, Invisible is being performed every night. He's singing There Is No Then every single night. So, yes, you know, he is drawing on a song that he's already performing anyway when he uses that line for one. But when it's something like that Crumbs line, a song the band has not played in 10 years, possibly hasn't thought about for 10 years, um, and he's trying to make a point with regards to human rights, to AIDS, to advocacy, um, then he will be drawing on that legacy of human rights campaigning rather than the song. Yeah, and I want to move on from this whole um, yes. snippeting thing, but I just want to say, going back to the database edit that uh, we were discussing tangentially related to this, like Hack said, we are going to be looking at things that we can do to um, get a seed tag, but also do some other minor cleanup things. We're looking and discussing at changing some of the songs so that we can have a possibly a comment beside them or some, some way to clarify how it was done. The biggest examples being the Edge Karaoke uh, on the Popmark tour, you know, we have instances where there was Dancing Queen was done by the full band on the Zoo TV tour, and that has a separate listing as Dancing Queen Edge Karaoke for the Popmark tour. And this is something that's come up again because of Bono singing the lyrics to the Fly Live at both Glasgow shows. And, you know, in the end, what we did was create a listing that says uh, Intermission, the Fly, Bono Live vocals only. And that's really an interim thing. And we said at the time, and we're going to look at that again, because clearly that's not something that quite works. No, you know, we would like to come up with you know, a solution that looks more attractive, that fits in with the database and data. Uh, and, you know, we had to come up with a solution, um, if you pardon the pun, on the fly that night. Um, we needed something quick, uh, we weren't in a position to make, you know, wholesale changes to the database. Um, but now that we've got probably quite a while um, before the next show, we're in a position where we can consider some modifications how to the coding to how the lists are represented. And another thing that we're working on that has actually been bubbling around for quite some time um, that we hope to finally finish soon is, as everyone knows, um, we list Shine Like Stars as a snippet and with without you, even though it's not truly a snippet. You know, a snippet is another song. Shine Like Stars is just this extra verse that Bono would add to with without you. It's not drawn from anywhere else. It's a main um, song like The Cry. Yes, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose what well, Shine Like Stars is really just a few extra lyrics sung over the outro that, you know, the outro is played whether or not um, Shine Like Stars is sung. Um, but, you know, we, we count it in, in the set anyway um, because it's good to know, especially, you know, I know I'm certainly not the only person who thinks that having Shine Like Stars elevates with or without you to another level. It's a very prominent part of the song. People have taken signs to concerts, you know, requesting the bottom singer, and it worked at a few shows this tour. Um, and so, you know, we have that, which raises the question of why don't we have Do You Hear Us Coming in one? And this has been on my mind, honestly, since the start of the 360 tour. I've been wanting to add it. I have a draft document listing some appearances of it, and we are going to get around to finishing that, to, you know, identifying all instances of Do You Hear Us Coming and adding it to the database. But we cannot make any time frame promises. I had wanted to do it during 360. It's still not done. So 
I don't I don't want to set a time frame, but that is something that we are actively working on, and it will be on the site one day. Yeah, uh, I have joined acts with working under you here is coming. One has so many performances. There's a lot of them to go through. What one has been played as of this recording. 679 times so that's 679 performances we need to go through it is going to take quite some time and in addition we're also looking at doing the same thing we're discussing it for um the coming to surrender verse that was done on tour in i will follow and beautiful day i mean i am confident that that is probably um a lyric from a um song that will appear on the next album songs of experience of course, given the way the band's songs evolved, it's possible that that lyric might not actually make it. Uh, it could be part of the song now and then gets cut from the final version. But the fact that Bono's singing it so much makes me think, you know, it's an important line to her that it will, will make it. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're going to make a list of that. And I guess wait and see. If it turns out to be on another song, then we can add that as a snippet. Um, if it turns out to not be on songs of experience, then we might just add it as its own thing, like Shine Like Stars or The Universe Coming. And the difference really between this particular verse, or just even lyric, and say the rapping moment of Surrender at the 360 tour, is really the fact that it's being done in two songs. Mm. And that kind of makes it more plausible that it's on Bono's mind because it's part of a song in progress. And the fact that it's being done in two songs instead of just one, it, it, it gives more credence to the theory. It also gives us more incentive to catalogue it for if that theory happens to be true. We'd rather get it done now then have it come out as a lyric in a song, and we're scrambling to go back through all these performances to figure out what it was. We're scrambling mm. right now to track down all the mumbles in Until the End of the World, because it was really only in the sixth or seventh last concert that there was an audio stream that was clear enough to hear what Bono was mumbling at the end of the song, and we found out that it was the Divine Image, a poem in the uh, poetry book Songs of Innocence. Although we do know that earlier in the tour, he was referencing other things. Like there was one performance on the first leg that I heard clearly enough uh, where he was quoting from Shakespeare's Macbeth. And there was another time where it was... Um, Lord of the Flies. That's it. I, I was thinking the fly. I couldn't think of the Lord of the Flies. <laughs> and like there, there's one case where that's been documented we've got to go through all these until the end of the world all these different audio streams and sometimes we're going off based off of two words that we can hear to figure out what's been going on that's how we've managed to track down some of the divine image mumbles because it's a mumble but we can hear these two words that are clearly in the context of the the divine image with the other way that the way he's done it for other performances so we are going through, trying to track down all these snippets that may have been missed. It's easier to do it as it's happening rather than going back and trying to find a specific recording for it. Like It's in the case, definitely a challenge. Yeah, and especially because the recordings that we have may not be clear enough to determine what's being said. Mm. Um, I, should, I should say here, though, that uh, Mackin's being very diplomatic at the moment about adding some of these mystery verses because he has been very strongly in favour of adding um, the moment of surrender rap um, to moment of surrender in 360. I've been more on the fence but am inclined now to add it. That it's beneficial extra information. That extra rap was something that a lot of fans enjoyed and it would be helpful for people to know when it was done. And you know, in some of these cases, it's also possible that what's being snippeted is, in fact, a cut lyric or a cut verse from the song. I certainly think that's plausible for Shine Like Stars. Absolutely, and especially given the way it was done right from the get-go on Joshua Tree. On and the I, I also think it's plausible that it's the case for the moment of Surrender Rap, given that mm. the original running time that we were told of the song was about 14 minutes, and the version that we had was cut down to seven. Mm. On the other hand, I don't think that's the case for Do You Hear Us Coming, because some of the notes that I have made 
um, I've gone through the first couple of legs of the Zoo TV tour. And initially, Do You Hear Us Coming is not there. Then, as the tour gets going in its first few weeks in the, the very first North American leg, Bono starts improvising over the end of the song. And there are a couple of concerts where he sings something different. He's ad-libbing, it's not a snippet um, of another song. Um, and then there are a few performances where he sings what is the melody of Do You Hear Us Coming with very early lyrics or different lyrics. It's not until later on that leg, or it might not even be until really the second leg, the European leg, that he settles on Do You Hear Us Coming as we know it. And it's also changed over time that um, it was originally Do You Hear Me Coming, um, and on later tours it becomes Do You Hear Us Coming. And there have been other variations. Uh, what is it after Michael Hutchins died? He sang it as Do You Hear Him Coming? Um, so, you know, it's, it's had those variations. But I think that's actually something that evolved organically in the performances, um, rather than being something cut from the studio, um, as may be the case for Shine Up Stars and the Monkey Surrender. Yeah, so in other words, we're working hard behind the scenes and there's a lot of stuff to go through. (laughs) 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 To to cut it really short, basically. Yes. Um, Okay, Axe, you really wanted to talk about setlist diversity on the tour. Uh, Specifically, you had two things that you wanted to come up with. The concept of rotating shows as opposed to just the four rotating setlist slots, and a heading which you insisted be titled Elevation Must Die. <laughs> um, yeah, sure, maybe touch on that first. Sure. Um, Elevation, you know, is a very popular song, especially. I think it's one of the songs that's actually more popular among casual fans and hardcore fans. Um, certainly that's been my experience from hanging around the fan community for so long. Um, yes, it works well live, it gets people jumping, it's fun, but do we really need it becoming a regular for the fourth tour in a row? Because I didn't mind it when it was showing up just every now and then um, on the first leg, but when in the second leg it became either elevation or desire every night, um, or, you know, in the case of Paris, they got elevation at literally all four shows. You know, this is a song that's already been done to death, and I think, um, I, I don't think it needed to be done as much as it was. Yeah, it's, it's, a decent, it's a decent song. It gets people jumping. I think in a lot of respects, its longevity was pretty much replaced instantly on the Vertigo tour by Vertigo. Mm. Um, it's another song that gets the people moving. It's faster it's a bit hard a bit more hard rocking so i think in a lot of ways elevation has been usurped by that it didn't actually appear on this tour for quite some time a surprising length of time but then the way that they started rotating it every other night it became a staple on the first leg and the third leg or sorry on the first and third nights as the first east stage slot it became quite clear that they were intending to use it on the recording for Paris. At the time we're saying this, Elevation has had eight official live releases in the past. And this isn't including the Paris broadcast, but that that would take it to nine. But do we really need Elevation that ninth time when there were other songs that haven't been done but were really rocking? There's Two Hearts Beat as One, which has done three times on the tour. That's only ever had one live release. There was Magnificent, which was done in a totally different style from any way it was done on the 360 tour. There's Volcano, you know, a brand new rocking song that, while not a personal favourite of mine or anything, certainly, you know, ought to be catalogued in some way for posterity because judging by how infrequently it's played, it's probably not going to stick around much in the future. Absolutely. I was convinced that Volcano would appear on the release and that you two would add it in. I mean, they have a history of trying to put their new songs into the release because they understand that it's likely they won't be played again. They want a live version of there. The prime example of this is Unknown Caller, which 
disappeared from the set list on the second leg of the 360 tour but they brought it back in time for the pasadena performance which was streamed on youtube and released on dvd um they wanted that song for that dvd and so i thought the same would certainly to be true volcano and so i'm really astounded that that wasn't the case i thought it would even make it as the second stage slot but if they had to keep elevation but that never ended up being there yeah that surprised me as for the broader issue of rotations um this tour has been strange in that sense um Obviously, the way the tour was originally promoted was that the first night and the second night were going to be quite different. The original tour announcement um, on YouTube.com says as much. Um, I think that's still on their site, even if it isn't, we quote it um, in our announcement of the tour, so you can go back into our archive um, in December 2014 and find the tour announcement where that very clearly indicates first and second night will be quite different. The way it worked out was that there was generally about a four-song difference between each night, clearly not the rotations that was indicated. What we do know is that in the course of the band's rehearsals before the tour, they abandoned the full rotations idea, um, but kept some of it, obviously, you know, the E stage, the second song slot, the closer, um, that sort of thing. Um, but this has led to a very unusual situation where, in terms of core set list, this tour has been very static. Not quite as static as Popmart, um, or, <laughs> or, la- or large chunks of Zoo TV. Um, but to be honest, it's, for an arena tour, it has not had the level of diversity night to night that we saw on Vertigo almost of elevation. It's been incredibly static, uh, with a core chunk of songs that have been played almost every night. Um, I won't do the count right now, but I think it's 18 songs, literally every single night, in a set list that's normally 23 to 25 songs long. Um, so it's, you know, leaving very little room um, for other songs to come in and out. On the other hand, we have an astonishing diversity of songs chosen. 55 different songs have been performed at least once in full on this tour. That is the third most ever. That's only behind Vertigo and 360, which are both much longer tours. I am certain that this tour, assuming that there is one more leg, which all rumours indicate there will be legs in North America, Europe, South America, Oceania to come in late 2016 and 2017. So assuming those are continued to be built as part of this tour, uh, I am 100% sure that that record will be broken. The record is 61 different songs across a single tour, so we only need seven songs to break, seven more songs to break that record. Uh, and like I say, that that should happen. So we've had this amazing variety of songs. And yet the core set list has been so static that many of those songs have struggled to get aired. They'll get played just once or twice despite all the effort that the band have clearly put into rehearsing them, and then they just disappear because there are so few rotational slots to fit them in. I think it's a tragedy that Zoo Station got done only once, only one out of the four Berlin shows. Spanish Eyes, only one out of the four Barcelona shows. Um, Two Hearts Beaters won, only three shows. Eleven O'Clock Tick Tock, was rehearsed and played impeccably at the Roxy show, not done at any IE tour shows. I, I think that was a missed opportunity. And there are just all kinds of other songs. Lucifer's Hands, New Year's Day, The Troubles, as we've already talked about, All I Want Is You, um, Volcano, as we've talked about, Crystal Ballroom, um, all these songs, an incredible diversity from big hits to fan favourites to rarities that have not got you know, if I've got five performances, they're lucky. Especially the second leg certainly suffered from this more than the first leg. Um, this is especially evident when you look at Mark Peterborough's um, setlist chart, which we're now hosting on our website. Oh, it's amazing charts. That is 
some incredible visualization of our data, and I I want to give him a massive shout out right now. A huge thank you. If you haven't looked at his charts, that we've retweeted on Twitter after every show, and as Matthew said, are now hosting on the site. They're beautiful work. They're wonderful. He is he has done a real service. And it's absolutely incredible because it really visualizes the data as well. And you can really see the points where the stagnation came in for the... And th this is something that really affected the second leg more than the first leg. Um, there's a lot more variability in the first leg blocks that have been colored in, whereas the second leg is mostly the same repeated. Or very predictable rotations, that it was going to be elevation one night, desire the next, whereas on the first leg, it was often a surprise what was the first song done on the E-stage rotation. It was hard to guess. It was really fantastic, I have to say, the first song, and it's a shame, or the first leg, and it's a shame that it didn't quite continue. I mean, with the 18 songs that were done at every concert, I think nine of them, it's fair to or eight of them, it's fair to say, were really solid, and that would be the opening act. We've got the opener with Joey Ramone, we've got the rotational second song which almost always with the exception of that one california appearance threw us right back to the early days um where at the time that they'd be listening to joey ramon who was inspiring them we'd have out of control there was the electric co gloria especially on the second leg two heart speeders one slotted into there once then we went into vertigo which was always even at the time that it was written and released back in 2004 it was said that this was a song that it's the same kind of song as Stories for Boys, just written all these years later. Uh, I think Steve Lillywhite was the one who said that to Bono. Then we went into the new song, or back to I Will Follow, again, sticking with the theme of the youth youthfulness, and I Will Follow with the theme of um, Bono's Mother Iris, of course, led naturally into the song Iris, into Cedarwood Road, song for someone which was really the only odd placement in that whole first set. Yeah, the, that first set was very well constructed. Um, I mean, I personally think Two Hearts Beat is one should have actually come become a regular in being played between Cedarwood Road and Song for Someone because cutting from the intensity of Cedarwood's ending to the soft start of Song for Someone, I always thought was a bit too abrupt. They do a good job getting out of it with the acoustic style Sunday, Bloody Sunday, then going into the intensity of Wolves and until the end of the world at the end of the set. But getting into Song for Someone, I thought was a bit awkward. Had they put Two Hearts Beat as one, that would sound fine after Cedarwood Road. And because it was written about Bono's honeymoon for his wife, um, it fits thematically really well the Song for Someone. So I think that would that would be really the only major change I would make. That first set, as much as I'm a big proponent of setless diversity, I'd love to see the band varying things up a bit more because they have so many songs in their catalogue that so many people want to hear. Um, as much as I would like to see more of that, the first leg was really well paced. It was... The second leg and the encore that I wanted more I'd argue that it's probably the single best overall arcing theme or mini set, as it were, that they've ever come up with. Certainly since the opening um, passage of Zoo TV, that was, you know, just an amazing shot of songs as well. But that was more uh, a sonic theme, whereas this had an actual narrative it was, it was a journey that the band took the crowd on that worked really well. And then I think, you know, the second set and the encore was the place to play around a bit more. They didn't have to do Pride or With Without You every night. They didn't have to do City of Blinding Lights essentially every night. Um, you know, they could have rotated even better than the real thing with Mysterious Ways and that would have freed up one more space as well. I think that to a degree they weren't as comfortable with the second set either because no. especially in the first leg we saw more meddling around with the order of songs. We saw every breaking wave going into Wither Without You, going into Bullet the Blue right. Sky. We saw 
um, studio blinding lights going into the main set. We saw a beautiful day being shuffled between the main set and the encore. Streets started out in the encore almost as the closer uh, in Vancouver before it was moved to the main set. They weren't quite as comfortable with that second set as they were with the first, which was, with the exception of that second slot song, was cast in iron. There wasn't yeah. a single change in the first ten songs apart from that. Yeah, and I mean, I honestly think this tour's biggest problem was the encore. Um, in that the second the second set had its problems on the first leg, but by by the second leg, um, they ironed some of those out um, through the amazing, incredibly moving refugee segment. Um, yeah, I think once you know, once they got to Europe and as the refugee crisis really became a lot more newsworthy, not only in Europe where it was already a major issue, but it became global. as a North American, it became a lot more prevalent here in North America than it had before, especially because it came up as an election theme when Alan Kurdi died. Um, it was in the middle of the Canadian election up here that brought it to the forefront to the whole country here, whereas before it was not discussed that much. And so as the refugee crisis really became a worldwide issue as opposed to something that was really only in the news in Europe, it was like they really worked in a fantastic set in that second mm. set. Where yeah, that, that second half of the second set, October, Bullet, Zeroka, Streets, Pride was perfectly paced with exactly the right visuals. It was really emotive, really striking. Um, so, I mean, that's, I guess, in part an explanation for why the second set perhaps became a bit more static. But it doesn't explain why the E stage became more static. It doesn't explain why they didn't play around with other parts of it. Um, I personally felt with or without you came across as tacked on at the end of that set that they could have finished with pride. Um, because that brought the theme to a close, then they could, you know, move with without you to the encore or something, play around with the encore more. The encore, I don't think, ever really got sorted out. Though when they did um, the version, which was City Blinding Lights, Beautiful Day, Bad, 40, that worked really well. That was a good encore. Um, but it just always, it always felt incomplete. Um, and the other interesting statistic that I should mention here is that so far, this is the only tour ever where you two have not played a song from the latest album in the encore. Wow. I, I, knew, yeah. I knew about the Zeropa stat in Popmart, but I didn't realize that it was the first time for um, yeah. the, the latest album not being in the encore. The closest we've got is that on the Unforgettable Fire um, there was not an, uh, a new song consistently in the encore, but there were a few nights where a new song such as A Sort of Homecoming did appear in the encore, whereas it has not happened on a single show this tour. And it's normal for there to be a new song. Um, you know, look at Moment of Surrender on 360. Look at All Because of You and Yahweh on um, on Vertigo. Walk On, very famous on Elevation. You can just keep going back like this. Even Zoropa managed to get some songs into the encore by the end of Zoo TV with Daddy's Gonna Pay and Lemon. So it is quite remarkable that there has not been a single song, songs of innocence song in the encore. 